Lord God, again, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us. And I thank you, Lord, most of all, that you are a heavenly father, the greatest father that any one of us could ever ask for. And as was prayed earlier, Lord God, I pray that this morning as we go through your word, that each and every one of us would experience that in a much greater way and in a much deeper way than we have in our own lives up to this point. So we ask that you would speak to us as your word is proclaimed. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. All right. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 15. As again, because of this day, we want to take a special moment to talk about fathers. And in particular, as I mentioned in my prayer, we're going to talk about the gracious father. This week, as I was preparing the, the message and I was looking through some commentaries on the prodigal son, one of the commentators actually said a better title for this section of scripture is the gracious father. So I stole that title. I'm letting you know up front. So I didn't cut. If you're like, hey, that's a really good title. Our pastor is so awesome. He's got good. No, I stole that. I stole that from somebody. And so I thought, you know what? What better father to look at on father than our heavenly father? So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at verses 11 through 20. But before we do that, what I'd really like to do is kind of give you some context of what's going on in this parable. And I'm sure most of us are familiar with the prodigal son. But why did Jesus give that parable to those that were listening? Well, if you go down to the very beginning of the chapter, verse 1, I want to read verses 1 through 3 to you. Really just one through two, actually. So just in Luke chapter 15, just to give you again some context. So Jesus here, Luke records this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. So that's right now Jesus is speaking to tax collectors and sinners, but that's not the only group that's there. Look at the next group that comes up in verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3 tells us, and so he told them this parable. And he actually tells three parables in this chapter. And we're going to look at the third one. So what's going on here is, so Jesus is there sitting or standing wherever he's at. And tax collectors and sinners, if you notice this, come to him. Right? He didn't go to them. They came to him. They came near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes, who were the religious leaders of the day, we're criticizing him for like, why is he hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? But note again, they came to him. It wasn't that, hey, Jesus went out there to hang out with them just to have a good time. No, they came to him. Why? Because they wanted to listen to them. And so the Pharisees were very critical of Jesus. And why would he hang out with such people? So again, Jesus tells them a series of three parables describing God's gracious love for outcasts and sinners. And so in the third one in particular, because that's the one that we're going to look at, he focuses on the Father's gracious love for the repentant sinner, the person who realizes and confesses their sinfulness before the Lord. And so that's the context that we look at, verse 11. So let's go there now. And we're going to read through this, and I'm going to make some points of just some application for yourself along the way, and then at the end, come back and give you some more application with points that will come up. So in the meantime, you'll have to write these down yourself when the Lord speaks to you through the text. So let's start in verse 11. So again, this is the third parable that Jesus 
is trying to show the tax collectors and Pharisees how gracious God is. And so starting in verse 11, it says this, And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of, the man, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. So right away, we see that there are two sons, and one of the sons wants his inheritance actually before his father passes away. He wants to have it now. He doesn't want to wait till later, and it wasn't that uncommon for that to happen, right? So the son wants his independence. It might seem a little early, but, you know, think about it. Sometimes as children, we want our independence from our family, right? You're, you're thinking, you know, I'm ready to take care of myself. I know what's best for me. And so maybe that's what was going on with this son here and this story. Again, how many times maybe you thought as a child, and maybe some of you now who are living in the home, I know my children don't think this, but I might have when I was a kid. You know, how many children think, you know, life would be so much better when I'm out on my own, I'm out from under the wings of my parents and my parents' watchful eye, right? I could do all that I want to do. Maybe that's what this young man was saying here. But let me caution you, this was a trick Satan used as well in Genesis chapter 3. You remember one of the first stories of the Bible that we encounter where Satan told Eve this very lie that it's going to be better if you do such and such. Remember he said to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 verse 4, after God told them not to eat of the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, he said, surely you shall not die, for God knows that in that day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Same thing here with this son, maybe you think, you know what, I know I can do it better. I know I can use this money in a more, you know, profitable way for himself. And the comparison here I want to make, though, for the Christian life is that some people might think, you know what, I want to break from God. Because remember, this is what Jesus is showing the tax collectors and Pharisees. This father isn't a human father. It represents our heavenly father. And so maybe that comparison is like some people in the church, you know, I need a break from God sometimes. Sometimes I just want to go out and do my own thing. I want to get out from under these restrictions that the Bible puts on me, the church puts on me, or my parents put on me, or my culture puts on me. And I want to do my own thing. They feel like the Lord is holding them back from enjoying life. They see people in their, their maybe their, that they know who don't go to church, and it looks like they're living it up and they're having the time of their life. And maybe, again, that's what this young man is going through. He's saying, you know what? Well, I don't have to wait for my father to die to get this inheritance. I could do so much more now with what I have. And so maybe for those of you who are feeling this right now, or maybe you might be tempted with this thought later on in life, let me tell you in the words of Master Yoda from Star Wars. As I thought of this, you remember what Master Yoda said he was feeling Anakin's Anakin was, I think, chopping down the sand people, if you remember, and the first one, which was actually the fourth one, I'm not going to confuse you with that, but anyway, Master Yoda says, pain, I'm not, should I do the Yoda voice? He's all, pain, suffering, death I feel. You'll remember that. My kid's like, oh my goodness, dad. But you'll remember it. That's what parents are saying to their kids. That's what God is saying to you when you want to stray. Pain, 
suffering, death, I feel, if you leave your heavenly father. That's what's out there. And again, why did this son want to leave? You know, it's one thing to want to leave your parents' home for a legitimate reason. Okay, we all eventually grow up and leave for a legitimate reason. Unfortunately, the reason this son wanted to leave was not a good reason, as we'll see in a few moments. He did not want to take his inheritance and invest it. He did not want to take his money and, and go start a family. He definitely did not want to do that. So let's see exactly what he wanted to do. Let's look at verse 13. It says, and not many days later, the young son gathered everything together and went on his journey into a distant land. So he's got all his inheritance. You know, maybe he sold whatever his dad gave him so that he can cash it in for money. Or maybe he cashed out with his father. And so he journeys to a distant land, and it says, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. So he had no care for all that his father had built up, no care for the value of what his dad did. He took all that his dad had worked for, probably for a long time, and he squandered it, it says, on loose living. This would be like your child taking something that, you know, it took you years to build up, for those of you that are parents, and they want it, you know, it's something that's prized and means a lot to you, and they just go and sell it on eBay or Amazon or at the garage sale to get a few bucks. And they do it while you're still alive. Think of how that would hurt. As I was thinking of that this morning, I was sitting there this morning studying, I was looking at my, my commentary library, and I was like, that's what that would be. Or my kids say, hey, Dad, I get like a third of this, right, because I have three kids, and they take it, which I've built up over years, and they just sell it for like 10 bucks. I'd be like, oh, how could you? Now I'm feeling the pain and suffering and the such things like that. That would maybe be the equivalent, you know, maybe whatever's valuable to you, obviously, Father, you're like, you know, take my books and get rid of them. But for me, that's a, maybe that's my idol. I don't know. But again, the point is he's t they're taking something of value and just selling it away with no care for it. And that's what this son is doing. And the point actually being made here again, because this is not an earthly father that we're talking about. Jesus is making a greater point. The point being made here is that here is God's created being rebelling against God, taking what God had given to them, and they wasted away. Again, this picture of a son going, you know what, I want God what you've given me, whether it's my time, my talents, and treasure, and they squander it on themselves with loose living. Again, that's what it says. Look at verses 13 and 14 again, right? He squandered his estate. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country, and he began to be impoverished. So your Bible translation may say wild living or living recklessly, right? He took that money. Again, this is why I said he didn't want to use it for something wise. He just wasted it on himself. As a matter of fact, if you take a peek at verse 30, his older brother tells you exactly what his brother did with the money. Look at verse 30. He says, when he's telling his dad, and we'll get to this in a moment, the older son's telling his dad, he says, but this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. That's what the son did with the money. He wasted all his money on women, on buying a good time. But he squandered it all the way, it says in verse 14. 
And look what it says. And when a famine occurred in that country, he began to be impoverished. So when hard times came, he had no more money to provide for himself. That this, so what does he do? Verse 14 and 15 tells us. Look at verse 15. He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. So after he loses all his money, he has nothing to provide himself, you know, no living. He didn't save any money. He wasted it all on just having a good time. It says he became impoverished. He became, he needed something. And so what does he do? He decides to hire himself out in the country that he's in, and he does the job of feeding pigs. Now, it's believed that this was, obviously, this was a Jewish culture, and so this is probably, you know, they're saying this parable is showing that this guy was in the lowest place that he could be because pigs were very dirty animals and not looked upon very well by the Jewish culture. So in a sense, he's in the, you know, he's hit Jewish skid row, so to speak. He's working and doing a job that no Jewish person would ever do. And it goes, he goes even further than that. Look at verse 16, or I should say he goes, he sinks lower than that. So he's sent out into these fields to feed the swine. Look at verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So not only is he down and out, he's actually starving, but he's working, but he, it would seem that he doesn't even have enough money to buy food, that he's willing to eat what the pigs were eating. So he's hit rock bottom. And again, this is the result, Jesus is trying to show, of a life lived apart from God. Spiritually speaking, people hit rock bottom. Again, they have that pain, suffering, and death, no hope. And so that's the picture Jesus is painting for the Pharisees and, and scribes on why he's speaking to tax collectors and sinners. They've hit the bottom. They're coming to him because they have a need, and that's exactly what happens now in this story with the prodigal son. Look at verse 17. But when he came to his senses, so finally he's hit rock bottom and he's woken up. He's come to his senses, and look at what he says in verse 17. He says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. He finally realizes that it would be better to go back home, return back to his father, than stay out here on his own, you know, living it up. He's not really living it up, is he? He realizes that his father's house was much better. He realizes that the hired, I mean, the people that work for his dad actually have enough food to eat. In comparison to him, who sought his independence, did everything that he wanted to do, and he finds out that there's... Nothing good out here, leaving my father's house. Just, again, pain and suffering. And maybe some of us remember that. Like, some of us are like, you know what? Remember how easy it was when we lived at home? I always tell my little 10-year-old this. You've got it so easy. The biggest concern you have is we make you go to bed at a certain time. I mean, how many, all of us would be like, put me to bed early. I would like to do that, <laughs> right? We're like, it's 9 o'clock, you're going to bed. You know, I'm like, I want to go to bed like 8, 8.30. But he's, you know, that's his biggest concern. You know, as I was going over this, there's a song 
I have teenagers, so they kind of keep me in the loop about what's going on in the world. And this might even be an old song now, but there's a group called 21 Pilots. Anybody ever heard of them? They have a song called Stressed Out. You could, you know, should I start singing it? Kids are like, no, Dad, don't. Let me get ready. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to do a dramatic. Don't worry. I'm going to do a dramatic reading. But the point in this song is, is the boys, they're remembering what it was like. You know, they're going through hard times now as adults. They're stressed out. Anxiety, you know, the, the reality of living life as an adult and no longer being under the care of mom and dad. And he's having some nostalgic thoughts. Similar to like this guy going, my dad is so much better back at dad's house. So the lyrics of the song go like this. There's a section that says, sometimes a certain smell will take me back to when I was young. I kind of want to start singing it, but I won't. Don't worry. So it's a smell. He's getting nostalgic, right? And he says, how come I'm never able to identify where it's coming from? I'd make a candle out of it if I ever found it. Try to sell it, I would, I, excuse me, try to sell it, I would never sell out of it. I'd probably sell one, it'd be to my brother, because we have the same nose. So he's like wanting to share that with his brother. So a couple lines later it says, but it would remind us of when nothing really mattered. Out of student loans and treehouse homes, we all would take the ladder. Again, he's remembering our biggest thing was, I'd rather take a treehouse home, because it was better as a kid. And then he comes to the chorus a few lines later, wish we could turn back time to the good old day when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Pretty cool. Did anybody sing it? Yeah, I'm sure you did. If you know that song, it's a really cool song. So anyways, the point being is this son is remembering how good he had it back at home. Why did I ever leave? I wanted to grow up too soon. And again, the point being, here we are in church as Christians, and sometimes we think, you know, we're going to have it better if we step out of God's will. We're going to have it better if I just maybe... Skip church for a few weeks, take a break, step out of Bible study, stop serving God. I need a break from this. We need to be careful of that. And so this son, he comes to his senses, right? He's all stressed out, but he's gonna, he wants to go back home. So part of coming to your senses, Jesus tells us, is verse 18. So not only realizing that you've hit rock bottom, that's very important. That's the first step. Look at what he says in verse 18. He goes, I will get up. I will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. So part of coming to his senses was one, realizing that going to my father's house is much better than where I'm at. Not only that, and it's acknowledging in verse 18 that he's sinned against God. I've sinned. He says, I've sinned against heaven. That's a euphemism for saying he sinned against God. Neither. And he acknowledges in verse 19 that I'm not even worthy to be called your son. He, he says, I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm not worthy to be a son, but at least I could be a hired servant. So he realizes that. And so after that, he recognizes that now I need to just get up and go. Because it's one thing to actually have those things playing through your head, now you have to get up and go do it. You have to go forward. A lot of people get stuck on realizing, I know what I need to do, but they just don't do it, right? How many of us have friends or family members who, you know, I know I need to go to church. I know I should give my life to God, but, you know, they haven't 
come to their senses, so to speak. They haven't hit rock bottom. They haven't realized that they need God. And so this young man does. And so in verse 20, he, he heads back to his father's house. And wasn't this not the Lord's prescription to all of us who are done with this world? Remember Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's what this son realized. You know, it was easier at my dad's house. And again, that's the overall message of this section. He says, come back. So he comes back to his father's house. And so what happens? How does the father respond? Well, think of, you know, I was thinking of us earthly fathers. How would we respond? Maybe some of us would I told you. You know, don't come back here. You need to go figure it out yourself, son. But no, that's not the way God responds. Again, here, this father is an example for our gracious heavenly father. And the father would have been well within his right to say, hey, sorry, son, I don't have any place for you. You've blown it. You have to figure it out yourself. And he could have been mad at him and angry at him. You wasted all my money on reckless living and everything that I worked for, and you blew it, and now you want to come back home? But God's not like that. Look at verse 20. So he got up and came to his father's house, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. So this father is truly a gracious father. He's been waiting for his son to come home. He sees him, and he runs out to him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. All this shows that he's receiving his son back. He's forgiving his son. And as this is happening, the son says, verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And, but the father just stops a midway through that conversation. Look at the next verse. So as he's saying this, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf Kill it and let us eat and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. It's like the son wants to say, hey, dad, I'm sorry, you know, please just, you know, just receive me back. He's like, no, son, we're not, we're not even doing that. Be quiet. I'm glad you're home. Here's a ring. Here's some new clothes. Here's some new sandals, and we're going to celebrate and party because you are back. That's an awesome picture of God's forgiveness and restoration to his children who come back home or for the first time come to the Lord. There's a great picture of this in the uh, book of Zechariah, prophet. I want to share this with you. Turn with me to Zechariah. We're going to look at chapter 3. This is a great picture of putting on a robe and cleaning somebody up. And usually in Scripture when it talks about putting on clothes... It's usually talking about a character trait, right? The Christians are clothed in righteousness of Christ. The character trait is that that's put on us. And so here the son comes, and he's dirty because he's probably obviously been feeding pigs. He has no food. He has no money. And the father says, let's take those things off and put on a new robe, a new ring, sandals, where, where he's going to clean them up. And this is the picture we see in the book of Zechariah. Look at chapter 3. 
And he says this, and this is about Joshua the king. And then it says, Then he showed me Joshua. So Zechariah is having a vision. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So it's like a court scene. Joshua the high priest is standing before God and Satan is on the, his side accusing Joshua of sin. Right? It would be like that young man coming back to his dad and he's going, how are you going to go back to your dad? Look what you've done with your dad's money. Your dad's not going to forgive you. No doubt that was playing in the young man's head for quite some time. And look at verse 2 of Zechariah chapter 3. The Lord said to Satan, so Satan's accusing this man. Look what God says. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So God's telling Satan, this guy that you're accusing, he's been plucked from the fire. I've already saved him. You can do nothing to him. Nothing you can say is going to change my mind. And then look at what God does. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, I have taken away your iniquity and I will clothe you with festal robes. So that's the picture that we have here in Luke, right? Joshua is standing filthy before God. It's being accused, rightly so, and God says, no, this guy has been forgiven, he's mine, and he takes off all the filthy clothes and puts on new clothes, festal robes. And then he says, let them put on a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by, and the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will perform my service then you will also govern my house, also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. This is the exact same picture we have in our parable before us. The father is putting his signet ring on his son, giving him authority, putting a robe on him, restoring his status. So he's been forgiven and restored back to who he was. Not because he did anything right, Right? He squandered his father's money, and if Satan was there, he was accusing the son of all things that had been done. But the father says, I don't care. He's my son. He's already been bought and paid for. He's forgiven and restored. And so he says, let's celebrate that. The son who was lost or dead has come back, and he's alive. But there's still one person in this story I want to look at, and that's going to be talked about in verses 25 through 30. There's the other brother. What is he going to say about all this? Now, his older brother, excuse me, now his older son was in the field, verse 25. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he's out in the field, he hears a big celebration going on, and he summons one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But, verse 28, he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. So the son here, as you can already tell, is a picture of the scribes and Pharisees, 
accusing Jesus of, why is he hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? The son here is a picture of somebody questioning the father's graciousness. It's like, I'm not going in there. Look at what he says. Why won't he go in? The dad's out there pleading with them. And this is what I read earlier. Start in verse 29. The, the older son says, But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him a brother, but this son of yours came, he who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. What is the son doing? Again, he's questioning his dad's graciousness. It is the father's prerogative if he wants to forgive the son. But this guy is saying, you know what? You were never gracious to me, and I deserve it, right? I've been good. I'm the good son. I've never done anything wrong, and you don't do it for me. This is a misunderstanding of God's love, and that's what Jesus is trying to prove. You guys, the tax collector, or the Pharisees and scribes, you guys think God owes you something because you're religious, or you did something good, and these guys don't deserve anything because they're tax collectors and sinners. Again, he's questioning God's graciousness, and he's displaying an attitude of self-righteousness. Like, hey, I've, I've been good all the time. I deserve that. God, and this is what the scribes and Pharisees always, Jesus should be hanging out with us. We're the righteous ones of Israel, not all these other people that he hangs out with or come to hear him. But these guys would never go to hear Jesus. Actually, if they did hear him, they would start questioning him and try to trap him. It's a total misunderstanding of God's love and a total misunderstanding of the gospel where you think, I'm good, I've done A, B, and C, and so God should save me, God should love me. No, it is the Father's prerogative to love who he wants to love, but he actually loves those who are repentant. He, didn't, he loved the Son, but he didn't, he didn't go and chase the Son down. He waited for the Son to come to him and admit that I've sinned against you. I don't even deserve to come back. And the father had every right to say, yeah, you're right, you don't. But he didn't do that. He received him back. He kissed him, he embraced him, he hugged him, put a ring on him and celebrated with him. And now he's pleading with the self-righteous people, come, come to this feast and celebrate. Look at verse 31. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. It's like, okay, you need to come too. The self-righteous person needs to rest. They need to come to the Father's house and celebrate. And we're not told what happened there, but the point being, again, is Jesus was trying to show the Pharisees and scribes the gracious love of God and why he sat with tax collectors and sinners. So what can we learn? about our gracious Father from this story. Let me just make four points under this one. Number one, that God allows His children to be humbled so that they will, so they will see their need for Him. Those of you that have been here for a while and been going through Isaiah, we see this, right? How many times in, in Isaiah does God allow Israel and Judah to be humbled? You guys want to go out and serve those other gods? You go ahead. And hopefully you wake up. Hopefully you come to your senses. We see that here. The father says, okay, you want to leave, son? Here's, here's your inheritance. Go out and live it up. And he's hoping 
that his son will come to his senses and realize it's not that great out there. Again, there's only pain, suffering, and death. And thankfully, his son realized it. So thankfully, and I hope none of us ever have to experience that, but that if we leave, if we want to walk away, God's going to allow us to go. And I pray that each and every one of us who strays at some sense would come to our senses and realize it was so much better in my father's house. But God allows his children to be humbled so that they, they will see their need. If you never allow your children to be humbled, they'll never see their need, right? That's the problem with we parent and we're always protecting our children and never let them fall and get hurt. They won't see that they need something. They think that everything's great outside, you know? And that's not the reality of life. Life is tough, right? Master Yoda warned us of what life was about. So what do we learn about our gracious Father? Number one, he allows his children to be humbled. He allows his children to be humbled. Number two, God lovingly seeks out the repentant sinner. Again, the son in this story is repentant. And God's looking for that, right? The father was looking and he sees his son from afar off and he runs to him. He sees that his son is repentant. Not only that, not only does he seek him out, he receives him. If somebody is repentant and they're sincere about their sin against God, he receives them. Again, the father ran, embraced, hugged, and kissed his son. And again, he had every right to tell that young boy, you're right, you want to come back home, you're going to be a hired servant. You are not going to be my son. You've lost that right. You sold that birthright, so to speak. But he doesn't do that. He receives them. And he, the fourth point, God lovingly restores the repentant sinner. And that should be comforting to each and every one of us, that God will restore us. Even if we fall away and you're out there feeding pigs and you realize, I need to go back home to the Lord, he will receive you and he will restore you to full sonship. You won't be something less than anybody else that has been here and never walked away. You are the same. Well, what do we learn about ourselves? Let me share some points about this, some things that we all need to understand. We learn those four things about the Lord and maybe even more. But what do we learn about ourselves? Number one, we must see our need for God's grace. Right? We must come to our senses. Each and every person in here at some point is going to, if you're not a believer yet, at some point you're going to need to see your need for God's grace. You can't be like that son that says, I'm a good guy. I don't, I don't need God. I've never left God. I don't kill. I don't murder. I don't steal. I'm a good guy. I was raised in a Christian home. I never you know, did those things that all these other people did. I've been here the whole time. God has to receive me. I'm the good son. No. Each and every person must come to see that they need God, that they're impoverished without God. And part of that means, and that's the second point, is we must recognize that we have sinned against God. Each and every person born in this world has sinned against God. And therefore, we don't deserve to be restored because we've broken God's command. And we need to understand that too. We must understand that we don't deserve God's grace. Again, picture that court scene in Zechariah where you are standing before God, you and me, 
individually standing before God in our filthy rags, our filthy character. We've all sinned. We're going to sin. You may be sinning right now. I don't know. But we've sinned against God. And Satan could tell God, look at this guy, goes to church, and look what he did yesterday. Look what he's going to do tomorrow. Look what he's doing right now in church. He's not even listening to the pastor speak. This guy deserves hell. And God would be well within his right to say, yeah, he does. And we do. But he says, no, this one is plucked from the fire because he's repentant. And that should be comforting to us. You know, if it's not comforting, you're like, yeah, you know what? I, I, if Satan said that, he can say that against me, and, I, and I'm doomed. Well, then what do you need to do? Which is the fourth point is you must draw near to God. You must come to your sense of the good. I'm doomed without God. Because I'm in these filthy robes, I'm in these filthy clothes. James 4, verse 8 and 10 tells us exactly this. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is exactly what the son in the parable did. He drew near to God and God ran to him. It says, cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's true repentance. When you realize, I'm miserable without God. I'm, you know, I'm stressed out. It was so much better back at home. It'd be so much better if I went to God, and you realize it, and then you have to go do it. You can't just mentally think that way. You have to physically do it. Run home to the Lord. Each and every one of us has either done that or needs to do that. And so let me close with one last point, and let's turn back to our book that we've been studying over the last year, Isaiah chapter 61. This is an awesome verse that we'll get to in a couple years. Because this is the one for each and every one of who's already a believer. For those of you that have already like come to your senses and realize, I'm, I need God. I so need God every day. This is our application. Number five, we rejoice in what God has done for us. And this is another picture of God putting robes on his people. So in Isaiah 61, look at verse 10. It's a great verse. It says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. Well, why does he say that? Look at the next line. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Again, that's the picture of the parable. It's not just, hey, I got brand new clothes. No, it's salvation being put on the sun. And so here Isaiah is speaking as I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with jewels. That's that picture of the ring. Just like at a wedding, everybody gets dressed up. We're the bride of Christ and he dresses us up in brand new clothes and jewelry and receives us because we believe in him and what he's done for us. And that's a picture that Isaiah paints here is we rejoice. He's rejoicing in God. And that's, I want that to be our application for those of us who are in the Lord. We should rejoice greatly in because of what God has done, right? Not because of I'm that good son. Hey, I don't, I don't sin as much as the other guy. I don't, I'm here on Sunday mornings. I'm serving in ministry. no. That's not what makes us righteous before God. We do those things because we're thankful for what God has done for us. 
And we rejoice in what God has done for us. And so we're going to have an opportunity to do that when we close in worship. So let's, before we do that, I just want to say, for those of you that are here this morning, it's like, you know what, I've never really have experienced that love of God. And maybe you're coming to your senses now, so to speak. I want to tell you, there's going to be people up here during the worship, and I would ask that you would come to them. You would return if you need to return. And let them pray with you and let God once again embrace you and kiss you and clothe you with the best robe and put that ring on you and let him celebrate that his son or daughter who was dead has come to life. And for the rest of us, let us greatly rejoice in the Lord as we worship. Let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank you for this day. And again, Lord God, even though the world celebrates earthly fathers and we're thankful for them, we rejoice even more because we have a heavenly father, a heavenly father who loves us when we don't deserve to be loved, a heavenly father who forgives us when we do not deserve forgiveness, and a heavenly father who restores us when we do not deserve to be restored. And so this morning, Lord God, we thank you for that, and we rejoice greatly in what you have done, taking off our filthy rags and putting on and clothing us in your righteousness and your salvation, which was accomplished in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, again, I pray for those this morning who do not yet know you, who have never experienced your forgiveness and your restoration, that this morning that they would take that step of faith and come into their senses and realize how much better it is in your house that they would come forward and pray with us. And we pray all this, Lord God, and thank you for your word. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.